I was that dad. I was that dad that messed up our finances so bad that I put our family in jeopardy. I was that dad. With the electricity cut off and the water cut off and the house in foreclosure, I was that dad. My wife Sharon and I, we started off with nothing when we got married. How many of y'all started off with nothing? You remember, we ain't got money, honey, but we got love. Good thing, too, because we ain't got any money. And I started buying and selling real estate, and I got rich, at least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee standards. I ended up with about $4 million worth of real estate by the time I was 26 years old. Where I grew up, that's rich. We were having fun. But I had done stupid. The stupid was I had borrowed so much money up to my eyeballs that I couldn't breathe. The bank got sold to another bank. I know that never happens here. And some banker in another city looked down and said, kid, 26 years old, owes us millions of dollars. Let's limit this relationship, which is banker talk for ruin his life. And they called our notes. And we spent the next two and a half years of our life selling everything and having everything taken and losing everything that we owned. We were sued so many times, the guy with the sheriff's department that brings those little lawsuit papers were on a first-name basis with the old boy. My wife's making him cookies. <laughs> Just come on in, Harold. I was so scared I couldn't breathe. We fought it because I was, grew up in a house where you give your word to somebody, you keep it. You tell somebody you're going to pay them, you pay them. That's how I was raised. And I worked my tail off. We sold everything. I worked 100 hours a week. I did everything I knew how to do, but it wasn't enough because there was a tsunami had hit our life, a tsunami of my stupidity. And I couldn't stop it. I was so scared I couldn't breathe. Had two little babies and a marriage hanging on by a thread. Number one cause of divorce in North America today, money fights and money problems. We didn't get a divorce. We held on to each other, but sometimes it was just to get a better grip. My wife is from the hills of East Tennessee, frying pan throwing. There's an Olympic event. <laughs> I remember standing in the shower with it as hot as I could stand it. And I would just stand there and cry because I didn't know what to do. I spent that two and a half years getting a thorough understanding that the borrower is slave to the lender. <laughs> you know, sometimes I run into people, they say, well, Dave, there's good debt. There's times you need to use debt. Although I can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Dave, there's good debt. And I say, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you because a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an opinion. I've been there. I've done that. And I've got the T-shirt. And it's an ugly shirt. And finally, after fighting and scratching and clawing and not knowing what to do, we just gave up. I'm not proud of that, but we did. And September 23rd of 1988, we filed bankruptcy. I was 
that dad. And I was born that year. And so I was born in April and mom and dad filed in September. And some people tell me that I was born at the worst possible time, the crash. But I see it differently because I think I was born at the best time because it was their fresh start. So you see, I not only had a front row seat of watching Dave and Sharon Ramsey figure out how to handle money, but I got to see them open up scripture and figure out God's ways of handling money. And because of that, I believe my life and my legacy has forever been changed. And that's not because I'm Dave Ramsey's daughter, but that's because I had a mom and a dad who took the time to teach me and give me the knowledge of what scripture says about money. And so now as an adult, I can stand on that foundation. And I think that's why one of my favorite calls on the Dave Ramsey show, dad's radio show, is when people call in to do their debt-free screams. If you've heard this, people will call in and they'll share their, their journey about how they got out of masses amounts of debt payments and now are completely debt-free. And in front of six million listeners on the radio, they get to scream out at the top of their lungs that they are debt-free. And dad actually does the radio show live in our office in Nashville. And so when you come into our office building, off to the right is dad's radio studio with a big glass wall so you can literally watch him do the show. Across from that, there's a little cafe called Martha's Place. And Martha's Place, there's cookies and cakes and cappuccinos and coffee being made. And so people will literally drive or fly from all across America to come to Nashville, Tennessee and Financial Peace Plaza to not only watch the show, but do their debt-free screams live in the lobby. And what's, what the really the perk about working at the office is I get to walk through that lobby between one and four and I get to meet these people. I get to hear their stories. You know, you'll meet the elderly couple sitting at the high top table in the corner who just paid off their mortgage. And you'll meet the single mom who drove up from Atlanta with her 15-year-old teenage son. And as a single mom, she just became debt-free. But the ones that always get me are the young families that come in. The doors to our office will open up and a little five-year-old boy will come sprinting in because he's been in the car for eight hours. <laughs> a dad will walk in behind him with a little two or three-year-old girl in little footy pajamas grabbing onto his leg and her little blonde curls are stuck to her face because she's been asleep. And then a very, very, very tired mom walks in behind them with a nine-month-old on her hip. And this family gets ready for their big debt-free scream. You know, they've driven from Oklahoma City to get here and, and the parents put on their radio headsets with the microphone and, and they get on the call with dad and they'll say things like, Dave, I took out an extra job and I worked nights and weekends for 11 months to finally pay off the student loan. The, the mom will say, Dave, we, we've taken a beach vacation down in Florida every year with the kids and this year we didn't go. And we took all the money we were gonna spend on that vacation and we paid off my van finally. And dad will then say these magical words. He'll say, okay guys, count it down. Let's hear your big debt-free scream. And as I watch this little family in our lobby, those parents gather up those kids 
and they bend down for the kids to reach the microphone and, and the two little ones get really excited. They kind of start jumping up and down because they know they have a job to do. And they've been practicing for eight hours for this point. But these sweet parents who literally have moved mountains and made sacrifices for these kids get to bend down and that dad, he gets to say, three, two, one. And in unison, this whole family with these little chipmunk voices in the background just scream out together, we're debt free. And every time I hear those calls, it just makes me cry because I think I was that little girl and I just wanna grab her little face in my hands and just say, do you have any idea what your parents have just done for you? Do you have any idea the legacy that's being left for you? Because I think, you know, my parents, they could have gone right back into their old ways, but they took scripture and they believed it when it says the borrower's slave to the lender. And they drew a line in the sand, they said enough is enough. And because of that, my life has been changed. So when I see that little girl, I get so excited for her in the next 10, 15, 20 years because I was that little girl. So how do we raise our children in such a way that they become biblically wise, money smart adults? Because see, some people say we want to raise good kids. I don't want to raise good kids. I want to raise kids that become adults and leave. I want to raise biblically wise, money smart kids. How do we do this? Well, Rachel and I have got a lot of opinions on this, and if we're going to make this stew, this recipe of biblically smart, money-wise adults, how do we do it? We're not sure. There's a lot of things that go into parenting, and those of you that are parents like me, you know it's messy, and you know we're not perfect. None of us do everything right. And so I'm not sure exactly what all the elements are in this recipe, but I do know three things that have to go in the pot. Three things that have to go in there. The first one is this. You have to teach your children God owns it all. It starts there. You don't own anything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns it all. If you understand that at four, at eight, at 14, at 24, or at 54, it changes your life. And it changes the way you handle money because you manage other people's money differently than you manage money you own. And when you realize you're not an owner, you're just a manager, God owns it all, and you have a responsibility to manage the blessings that he has put in your life, well, it changes how you view money. Now, we've worked really hard on this, and we didn't have, like, God owns it all summits or anything like that, but as there was conversations that were going on, we were constantly reminding our kids, because here's what happens. If you think it's all about you, then money, you're going to make all kinds of money mistakes that have to do with you being all about you. That's called selfishness. And when you teach people that it's not all about you, that God owns it all, it changes the whole discussion for adults, but certainly for kids. Certainly. An example was one time we finally got, you know, when we went broke, we were driving hoopties, right? Y'all ever drive an old beat-up car? And, and we had one car, the predominant color on this puppy was Bondo. 
And finally, we moved up through cars. You know, over time, we started handling money God's ways. We started winning. We got a little better car, a little better car. And we finally got a legitimately nice used car. Now, I don't know what you guys do when you get a nice new used car at your place, but we celebrate. We would get everybody in the car and ride around the block and go, woo, car, you know. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Rachel's little brother, Daniel, at that time, he was about six or eight years old, and I'll never forget the little guy. He's full of himself, and we just finished our little drive around. We pulled up in the driveway, and he's in the back seat, and he flops back in the back seat with his arms across the back like only a little boy can do and says, Dad, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> I started laughing. I said, I'm doing pretty good. You got nothing. Uh, it was cute, and it was kind of a fun moment. But the truth is you got to constantly inject into them that they don't own it. They're not entitled. Entitlement is a particular kind of arrogance that has to do with you don't know your position in the universe. Entitlement seems to think that you are God instead of God owns it all, and you're not God. So you have to teach your kids God owns it all. You also want to teach your kids the value of work. In Scripture, it says the diligent prosper. You want to teach your kids how and why to work. And more importantly, you want to teach your kids that money comes from work. Money does not come from mom and dad's back pocket. And so growing up in the Ramsey house, as kids, we were never given an allowance. We were always on commission. So you work, you get paid, you don't work, you don't get paid. And so from early on, we associated that money comes from work. And you do this with your kids, obviously age appropriate, right? A four-year-old works in the house differently than a 14-year-old. So it's all age appropriate. But once they, they do some things around the house, do some chores, make some money, then there's really three basic things your kids can do with money when they're under your roof. The first thing you wanna teach them to do is, is to spend wisely. Take some money they've earned and let them spend wisely and show them how you spend wisely. I mean, moms, when you're at the grocery store with your kids, show them that you're buying, you know, possibly the generic brand cereal, you know, versus the, the big branded cereal. Things like that, show them how to spend their money wisely. And when they spend money that they've earned, they have to, they feel something that's so crucial. They start to feel that money is finite. That once it's gone, it's gone. And there's a boundary in place. There's a limit with money. And so letting your kids experience that. You also want your kids to experience the, 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 the principle of saving money. In Proverbs, it says, In the house of the wise, there are stores of choice food and oil. A foolish man devours all he has. Wise people save. Foolish people spend everything they make. Teach your kids to save. And again, age appropriate. So when you have little, little kids, you know, six, seven, eight years old, let them have a savings goal that they're working towards. But maybe it just takes them two or three weeks to save for. But the older they get, the more expensive their goals will probably become. When we were about 10 or 11 years old in the Ramsey house, mom and dad told us that they were not going to pay for our cars when we turned 16. That we had to save up money and what they were going to do was match how much we saved. Dad called that his 401 Dave plan. <laughs> and so my sister, who's two and a half years older than me, when she turned 16, I was watching in the background to see if they were really gonna keep their word and do it. 
and they did. And so I went into full gear at that point. At 13, I thought, okay, I want a better car than my sister. And I just want a good car. And so I kind of had this goal and I just went for it. I mean, I, I worked weekends, I worked nights. I mean, I, I did, I mean, I was crazy. I just worked all the time because I was saving up for this big goal. And by the time I turned 16, I had saved $8,000. So I got a $16,000 car at 16 years old. And, and I tell you that parents, not because of the amount necessarily, or even the fact that mom and dad matched us because maybe financially you're not in a place where you can match your kids and that's okay. But what that did for me at 16 years old is I learned sacrifice. I learned patience. I learned delayed gratification. And I'm telling you, when I sat in that car at 16 years old, I drove that car much differently than my friends who were just given cars. Everything changes when it's you doing it. And getting that foundation under me at 16, I believe was such a gift. So teach your kids to save. And lastly, you want to teach your kids, probably the most important aspect is giving. You want to teach your kids to give and to live with this open-handed mentality. In Genesis, it says we were created in the image of God. And God is the biggest giver of us all. So if we were made in his image and he is a giver, we were created to be givers. And letting your six, seven, 14-year-old experience that part of their DNA is incredible. And this is not you necessarily handing them a dollar coming into church. This is them doing chores throughout the week and they are giving part of the money that they've earned away. And when you do that week after week, month after month, year after year, their little hearts change. And some parents say, well, do I force my kids to give? Is that something I make them do? I would say yes. You make them brush their teeth. You make them study for tests. You make them do things and do that. And it may be, you know, a pushback at first, but again, gradually, I believe they become more and more like Christ when they're able to do that. And so laying this foundation of a work ethic and being able to handle their money wisely as kids gives them a solid, solid foundation to stand on. So we're going to teach them God owns it all. We're going to teach them the value of work. And the third thing is we're going to teach them that contentment is the antidote. Contentment is the antidote to what's going on in our culture. The infection into the spirit of your child that is coming out of this culture and materialism. You have to teach contentment. You have to work at it. Because the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, when you're content, you can save. When you're content, you can give. When you're content, you can get out of debt and you can avoid debt because you're not buying things you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't really like. Contentment changes everything. And content people are neat people. They, they, not only, they don't always have the best of everything, but they always make the best of everything. Have you ever as a parent, and I've had this happen, and I messed it up, y'all, I'll just admit it. Have you ever bought a really cool toy for your three-year-old for birthday or for Christmas? And they open it up, and they're, woo and you look over 20 minutes later, and they're playing with the box. They're just as content as they can be. Now, I had to fix that, of course. I had to teach them materialism. I'm like, no, 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 play with the expensive toy. That's what was, you, you missed the point here. And they're like, no, I'm good. I'm content. So you don't always have the best of everything, but they make the best of everything. It's like the two little boys that were being studied in a psychological profile. One of them was a pessimist and one of them was an optimist. And they put the little pessimist in a, in a room, glass wall full of manure, and they put the little optimist in a room, glass wall full of manure. 
And they came back a few hours later and the little pessimist sitting in the corner crying and they said, why are you crying? And he said, well, you set me in a room full of manure. He said, nothing good ever happens to me. And they go over to the little optimist and he's in there throwing the manure up in the air. We go, what are you doing? And he said, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. So where does contentment come from? How do we start that process? I'm not sure exactly, but we've studied this a lot and thought about it and prayed over it a lot, and we know at least one element of content people is they're grateful people. Teach your children to be grateful people. Grateful people, by the way, are beautiful people. Ungrateful people are ugly. They're ugly human beings. And so teach them, and it starts with something as simple as saying, thank you. That's gratitude. Thank you. And by the way, mean it. Thank you, Gateway, for letting us be here today. We're really glad we're here. Thank you, God, for putting this at the end of my arm, this amazing thing called a hand. And look, you gave me two of them. Thank you, Lord. You can count your blessings, can't you? That's gratitude. And you know, gratitude never happens when people aren't humble. So teach not humiliation, but humility. Humility simply means that you're not the center of the universe. You know, some households, the children are in charge, have you noticed? Some households, the inmates are running the asylum. (laughs) And this is a problem, because that is not a humble child that can become a grateful child that can become a contented adult. And so teaching humility that you're not the center of the universe. I know that thing sticking out of the top of your head. You think it's the axis of the world, but it's not, baby. I mean, we had this Bill Cosby discussion with our kids. We explained to him, we said, you know, we love you. We will do anything for you. I would die for you, but I'm also the one that might kill you. Because I can take you out and make another one look just like you. It's not all about you. And if you do this, it changes the little hearts. And generosity is at the core of this too. Generosity is the antidote for selfishness. And it teaches a type of humility. When you teach generosity, it moves people away from selfishness. When our kids were little, Rachel was the strong-willed child, the one that would put her hands on her hips at three years old and just defy you. Yeah, Robson wrote a book about her, strong-willed child. And so she went off to kindergarten, and the little kindergarten teacher told the kids, write a, write a, draw a little picture and write down what you would do if you had $100. If you had $100. Now, we started reading this when she brought it home with her homework papers. My wife, Sharon, and I were cracking up at these five-year-old kids. If I had $100, Scott H. says, I'd want a car that changes into everything. He's five! (laughs) Allison says, if I had $100, I'd buy a little dollhouse. Andrew L. says, if I had $100, I'd buy a swimming pool with a diving board, a football, a gun, and a bomb. (laughs) Put this kid on the terrorist watch list. (laughs) So all these little characters in here and our little character, we figure hers is going to be the cutest, funniest of them all, which was actually God setting us up. Because when we flipped to Rachel's page, it just took our breath away. And Sharon, my wife, and I sat on the floor and cried. As Rachel says, if I had $100, I'd give it to the poor people. Teach humility and gratitude so that they can have contentment 
which is the antidote. Teach God owns it all, the value of work, and that contentment is the antidote. I have to make a little confession. I do not remember doing this. <laughs> but I can tell you probably what was going on in my mind. Because parents, as you realize with, with most of parenting, your kids, they, they watch your example. So more is caught than taught. And I can remember sitting in the pew at church growing up in a little red velvet offering bag with two wooden handles on each side would get passed down the row every Sunday. And I'd be sitting in my sister's hand-me-down dress and I remember leaning over and watching my dad week after week drop a folded check in that bag. He'd drop a check in, drop a check in. And it was not announced, it wasn't, hey kids, mom and dad are giving this week. We just watched them live out their lives. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. So more is caught than taught. And when you're teaching your kids all of these principles, it's not, it doesn't happen in one big money conversation or one weekend long money summit that you have with the family. This is a progression over time, teachable moments throughout the day. And I believe handing them a little bit of responsibility at a time for them to feel the weight of responsibility with their own money. It kind of reminds me of the way mom and dad parented growing up. They, I feel like sometimes there's two extremes of parents. There's, there's some parents that are like, let's just live in this little bubble and I don't want you to see the outside world. I don't want you to make any decision because I don't want you to feel pain or feel, feel bad. So let's just stay right here all together. And some of those kids are the ones that graduate high school and go off to college and go crazy. We've all known them because they were never allowed to make any decision with their life. And so when they got to the point where they had to make a choice, they couldn't make the right choice because they were never allowed to make any choices. So their decision-making muscle, if you will, was never built. But then you have the parents that are kind of over on this side of the spectrum that are like, fly, little eight-year-old, fly and be free. <laughs> you know, run around screaming and begging your silverware in the restaurant. We're okay with it, go ahead, right? And it's just like, oh my gosh, will you please parent discipline still exists, you know? And so there's like these two extremes and, and mom and dad tried to find the middle ground and they did this through an analogy of a rope. So the idea was that we were tied to one end of the rope and they had the other end. And depending upon how well we could make our own decisions, how competent we were, trustworthy we were, they would let the rope out and we would get more and more freedom. But if we made a bad decision, they would pull the rope back in. So I remember being in the eighth grade and going to the movies with a few girlfriends and we left the movie, didn't go see it and went across the street and got ice cream. And I didn't call my mom and mom couldn't find me when she came back to pick me up. It was this whole ordeal. And we had a family meeting about it that night. And her dad saying, Rachel, if you had called mom on the payphone, you know, there were no cell phones back then. If you had called mom on the payphone, we, we probably would have let you, but now we can't trust that that's what you're going to do because you didn't say, you, you weren't where you said you were going to be. So we're going to have to pull the rope back in. But then a few years later, I was at a high school party and some adult beverages were being passed around. And I called my mom to come have her pick me up and I got in the car and she looked at me and she said, lots of rope, Rachel, you get lots of rope. Good decision, good choice, good choice. <laughs> So this rope analogy was talked about all the time. And when my older sister Denise was graduating high school and going to college, we had a big dinner the night before she left. If you had, you know, if your first one's left home, it's a big deal. 
And so mom made this huge meal. We sat in the dining room table and ate off the fancy plates and the cloth, we had the cloth napkins. You know, it was a big, a big farewell dinner. And we all went around and told stories about Denise. You know, we were laughing and crying. It was like she was dying or something, but she wasn't. <laughs> Just moving two and a half hours away. But towards the end of the dinner, dad pulled out a gift bag and he pulled this out of it, a rope. And he told Denise, you know, how proud he was of her. And, um, but their rope, they've been giving her more and more rope. And now at this point in life, what they had left does not reach from Nashville to Knoxville. And so now they're having to hand her the rope and her day-to-day decisions are now up to her. And so he tied different ribbons around the rope symbolizing different areas of her life. So white was her purity. Orange was because she was going to the University of Tennessee. Go Vols. Purple was her spiritual walk. Red was her academics. And yellow was if she ever needed to come home. And he said, Denise, this is really your your passage into adulthood. And he handed her the rope. And we all just cried and we're like, Denise has the rope and she's just never coming home again. Everything's changing. (laughs) Now, I'm the middle child of the Ramsey family, so the neglected and abused child. (laughs) And so when I was going off to college, I was going to bed and dad was like, oh, Rachel, you need a rope, don't you? Went to the garage, (laughs) handed me this. I'll let you decide which child is their favorite, but I think think we know. But this rope I see is really a legacy of life. Having parents that were not perfect, but were intentional with us. And I think this legacy, in contrast, of what this legacy could have been. In Deuteronomy it says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life or death, blessing or cursing. So choose life that you and your descendants may live. So I was that dad that messed up, put my family in jeopardy. But my life and the life of my wife, Sharon, had an intersection with a man named Jesus. And he and his Father and his Holy Spirit began transforming us and teaching us and guiding us and changing us, not making us perfect. But grace is pretty cool. Grace says you get a do-over. Grace says you get a do-over. And sometimes, really, your do-over might just be your kids. It might be that in spite of how dumb and how messed up you've been, or I've been, God says we get a do-over. It's called our legacy. It's called changing your family tree. And so if you've messed up, I give you permission to do that. I'm in your class. But don't quit. Don't resign. Don't stop. Because you can change your family tree. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can change my legacy permanently 
because of the work that was done on the cross and because God's Word is a wonderful instruction manual on how to operate my lives. And so while I was that dad, because of Jesus, now I'm that dad that has changed his family tree. My legacy is forever changed. The direction has shifted, and yours can too. It's up to you. God, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful church. We thank you for the wonderful families that are sitting here. And God, we just ask that you pour your spirit out, a spirit of encouragement, a spirit of hope. We ask that you pour out a spirit of, of correction, and Father, a spirit of courage to, to, to change and to transform. And God, we're just thankful that you give us second and third and fourth and fifth chances because, Lord, we are a messed up bunch, and we need your grace. We need to walk in the things you've got for us to do. And God, we're just thankful for your presence here today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.